I can't get over this morning what a privilege it is for us together to come to the word of the living God. We get to open the Bible this morning. And today we're celebrating freedom, but let's, let's rejoice that we're free to do this, that we're free to gather under God's word and that God's going to be speaking. And I just view it as such a privilege that Jesus right now is finishing the work that he started in you. And this morning gets to play a role in that. By his word, he's going to be ministering to our hearts through the living and abiding word of God. And so if you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis chapter 41. I missed being here with you last week. We were up at New King Church in Burlington, a partner church of ours, and I got to bring the word there and uh, they bring greetings. We got to be remembering to pray for other churches that are gathering at the same time under the word of God. Um, and it is so encouraging to know that the word of the Lord is going forth throughout Vermont and all around New England, even right now as we do the same. And, um, but I, I went back and I listened to David's sermon from last week and it was so good. I just thought about preaching for five minutes and then referring you back to last week's message because there is a little bit of overlap. So you're going to hear me say, go back and listen to David on this, and then we're going to keep moving. Um, and that'll make me hopefully shorter and also will encourage you if you have not gotten to listen to him preach from Genesis chapter 40. If you're new to this series in Genesis, we are in the life of Joseph. Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham, and he Uh, has been betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, rose to prominence in slavery before he was falsely accused by his master's wife and then was put in a dungeon or a pit um, that was reserved for sort of enemies of the state. And he is, uh, God's with him the whole time. It's really important. So David referred to that a lot last week, that God is with you in the midst of the trials that he has you going through. Um, But our passage this morning begins with after two whole years. And he uses that language. It's been two entire years since Joseph interpreted these dreams for these other prisoners and they got out and and the guy that got out and had favor from Pharaoh was completely completely forgot Joseph. Joseph said, hey, put in a good word for me when you get out. Don't forget about me. But that's exactly what he does. And it's been two entire years since that moment. But I want you to hear this. It's been 13 years since we first encountered Joseph. And Joseph was a 17-year-old boy who had these dreams from God and these promises from God about prominence and about his brothers coming down, coming to bow before him and his parents coming to bow before him. And instead of seeing the fulfillment of that promise immediately, he's sold into slavery, and it's been 13 years of trials. And so I am praying, and I want to pray for us before we dive in. This passage has the potential to be immensely encouraging to you in the midst of trial. And I've just been thinking about this church pastorally because I know what so many of you are going through. And I just think this is not a message that's preached into a vacuum. This goes into the real hurts and pains of your life where it feels like you have this promise from God or you have these promises from him in Christ, but it feels like it's been years and years and years in the pit 
in a dungeon of sorts. Maybe it hasn't been years, but you feel like you're there nonetheless. And so I want to pray, and then we're going to dive in together. Father, I pray that you would come by your Spirit and reveal yourself to your people, that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that you would save those who are crushed in spirit, that you would give us fresh faith to trust you, that we would see your purposes in the midst of the circumstances of our lives, and that we would grow confident in faith, that you are able to do all that you've promised. Lord, that in any and every circumstance, you are God and you are good. We pray that you would give us faith to see it and believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read, this chapter is long. It's going to contribute to the length of this message. It's, this, the text is taking away from preaching time, but that's okay when the Bible does that. So I'm going to try to shorten up my part and give you um, the text of Scripture, but we're going to break it up. So instead of reading you 56 verses all at once and you guys losing it about halfway through, we're going to take it in scenes. And so um, the first scene Uh, and this is going to be a theme that carries itself through the rest of the chapter, Uh, I want you to see the sovereign God who reveals himself. The sovereign God who reveals himself. So the text says, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So how are we doing so far? Super encouraging, right? Like, let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. So there, there is encouragement coming in the midst of this. But right now we see God breaking in to Pharaoh's dreams to reveal to him what he's about to do. So um, you're going to see this theme throughout this chapter where I want to begin is the sovereign providence of God. Because God is not mentioned here, so you get this idea of providence. He is breaking in to Pharaoh's dreams, and he's telling him what he's about to do. Joseph repeats this twice as he's interpreting Pharaoh's dreams to him. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. But I don't want you to miss this. God providentially orchestrates the events and times of history and all the seasons of your life And he is imposing his will and his timing over one of the most powerful nations on the earth. And he's revealing himself to someone who believes he is divine. And when, when Pharaoh goes to sleep believing that he is God, God breaks in with these dreams, multiple of them, to confirm what he is about to do. This is the God who providentially works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything. He rules over kings and over those in authority. And ultimately, we're, we're seeing in the story of Joseph how the children of Israel end up in Egypt, setting the stage for God's great deliverance of Israel that would prove to be 
the great salvific event in Israel's history that would point ahead to the cross of Christ. And so God is orchestrating the events of this chapter all in view of the great deliverance of his people, both in immediate history and ultimately in the cross of Christ. But I love what Daniel says when there's another pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has dreams sent to him by God. And when Daniel receives the interpretation from God for Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, blessed be, the God, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And Nebuchadnezzar would later say of God that all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So I don't want to miss this at the outset, that we would stop and marvel at God and his providence, that he is orchestrating the affairs of your life and the events and circumstances of the lives of everyone that you know who has ever existed. You, we can't keep a calendar straight without Siri or some other device telling us what to do or what events are coming up. God is orchestrating every detail all together, all the events and actions and chain reactions, and he's working them all together according to the counsel of his will for his good purposes. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He's the one who changes times and seasons and here into the dreams of a man who believes he is God, he declares to him, here is what I am going to do. He is, secondly, so you see his sovereign providence, but you see that he's a God who reveals himself. And we're not going to spend a long time here because David, again, last week you can go listen to the message from Joseph being the revealer of God and his mysteries. But dream is mentioned in this chapter at least 19 times, which shows that this is a key theme. But God is the one who is breaking into the dreams of people. He's the one who gave Joseph his dreams in Genesis 37. He's the one who gave the cupbearer and the chief baker their dreams in the previous chapter. And now he is breaking into the dreams of one of the rulers of the known world. And this is shockingly merciful of God to be revealing to Pharaoh, somebody who so brazenly exalted himself against God, and to, for him to be coming to him mercifully to show him what he's about to do so that God would get glory as he puts it on display through Joseph and through Israel, and ultimately he does it for the salvation of the world. But God's revelation to Pharaoh is so shocking and alarming that Pharaoh cannot rest until he gets the interpretation for this dream. And God's given him enough revelation to know that when the magicians of Egypt come and try to make known the interpretation, Pharaoh knows that's not it. No, that's not it. And he cannot rest. So God is the one who reveals himself and his will to people. And David talked about last week how God has revealed himself. Yes, he does reveal himself through dreams, but that's not the primary way he's revealed himself. Romans 1 says that he has revealed himself to all that he has made through all that he has made. His, all that you can know about God, his invisible attributes and his divine nature can be clearly seen and are clearly perceived through everything that he has made. 
He has revealed himself. And he has revealed himself most clearly and explicitly and specifically through this living, abiding word of God. But Jesus is the Logos, the one who reveals himself. And he, he's outgoing with himself and with his will to reveal himself to all that he has made. And here he's doing it through dreams. And God has appointed that his people be the ones who hear the will of God and see God as he is and then proclaim it to the world around them. So that is what we see happening in the next scene with Joseph. So we're going to pick up in verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, remember this is the guy who Joseph had accurately interpreted his dream and he received Pharaoh from favor, I mean, Favor from Pharaoh, sorry. The chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with the servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there was no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So then Pharaoh proceeds to describe his dream to Joseph. And the only detail that's added to the, to the account of the dream that we've already read is that in verse 21, he says that when the ugly cows eat the more plump fat cows, that they were still as ugly as they were before. And he tells Joseph in verse 24, I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are actually one dream. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears of corn are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come up seven years of great plenty throughout all, all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. So Joseph's picking up on Pharaoh saying, look, the, the, the ugly cows came and ate the plump cows, and they were just as ugly and skinny as before. And so Joseph's telling them, these years of famine are going to be so bad, that all the years of plenty in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. Verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming 
and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now here's what I want you to see. If you weren't here in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph has these dreams from God, and he is a 17-year-old kid who goes to his brothers and his parents, and he's really boasting about his dreams. Like, you guys are going to bow down to me, and his brothers hate him for it. And over and over again, we saw that. Their, their hatred for Joseph got worse and worse, where they could not bear him. They couldn't, they couldn't abide with him because he was so arrogant about the dreams, and, he, and they just despised the favor that he was receiving from his father and from God. But I want you to see, this is a changed Joseph. This is after 13 years of suffering and of the refining fire of God, Joseph emerges like purified gold. So this scene is God's humbled and confident servant. I want you to see Joseph's humble and confident faith. Now look at this. Joseph doesn't emerge from the pit bitter or questioning God, questioning the last two years. You can just imagine. I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes. All he's done is be righteous and take righteous stands for God. And he is falsely accused. He's unjustly imprisoned. And then he seems like he gets this opportunity to get out. He rightly interprets these dreams. Other people who are less righteous than him are delivered and get out of jail. And he's forgotten for two more years. I just imagine myself in the situation where they come to me and say, hey, I've heard you can interpret dreams and being like, no, I can't. Because they don't matter anyways. I mean, let me tell you, I had dreams 13 years ago and they don't matter. They're obviously not important uh, because nothing of what I've dreamed has come to pass. But instead, Joseph doesn't question God. He's not bitter with God. He's not angry at God. He's not mainly focused on getting back at Potiphar and his wife or getting back at the, uh, the cupbearer who had completely forgotten about him. He comes out confident in faith and humble before Pharaoh. And I want you to see there's the beginning of this reversal. So they go to grab Joseph and Pharaoh has been in a panic, just urgent to get this interpretation for the dream. And you start to see this big reversal because they go to get Joseph and it says they bring him out of the pit. Now remember that this all began for Joseph when he was stripped of his robe of many colors, this coat of honor from his father. He's stripped of that coat and he's thrown into a pit. And it's been 13 years. So now what's happening is he's brought out of the pit and the language for they changed his clothes. They're in such a hurry, they shave him and he goes to a quick barbershop, Andrew George style. And then they don't have time to change all of his other clothes. They just put on nice clothes over top of his prison garments and rush him to Pharaoh because Pharaoh's in a hurry to get this interpretation. But what's happening is he's being brought up out of the pit and clothed with a coat of honor. And you can see, I mean, in Joseph's mind, this is the beginning of this great fulfillment of these promises from God. He has not grown weary in unbelief, but has grown strong in faith. And he has this humble confidence that God is going to do what he has promised. And so he stands up in front of this man who believes that he is divine and this guy who thinks he's God says, I've heard that you can interpret dreams. And he looks him right in the eyes and says, it's not me. 
God can. It's, it's exactly the same kind of language that we saw in the previous chapter where he's got this humble confidence in God despite all these years of painful circumstances and sorrow. He looks right at the baker and the cupbearer and he says, do not interpretations belong to God? Is God not the revealer of mysteries? Is God not the sovereign who's the one who's able to give us the answers in this time of need? And so this is not the same 17-year-old boy who's boasting in receiving revelations from God. Uh, This is a man who has been humbled and forged by suffering and by intimacy with God in secret. He has been with God in the secret place. He's been hidden. And now God is beginning to bring about all that he's promised, and Joseph can sense it. So by contrast to his former boasting over his brothers, he's now coming to Pharaoh, and he says, I don't have any power to do this. This glory belongs to God alone. This is a humble man who is afraid to tread on the glory of God. And that, if you hear one thing, I hope you hear a lot more, but if you hear one thing, this is what suffering can do to you. To give you this humble faith and confidence in God where you know him and you walk with him and all of a sudden you are scared to tread on his glory or take control of your life and your circumstances. You see God's glory and his sovereignty is hot and it's just too hot to touch. I'm not going there. I'm not going to say, why, yes, I mean, I do kind of have a history of interpreting dreams. I'm kind of God's guy on this. He doesn't go anywhere near there. He says, no, no, no. It's, I've, there's nothing special about me. This power belongs to God, but he's able to give you a favorable response. But I don't want you to miss this. He tells Pharaoh that these coupling of dreams are actually one dream and that their coupling, this reiteration of the dream by God means that the thing is fixed by God, meaning it's firmly established. This is not going to be changed by you or by anybody else. God has said, this is what I am going to do and that he would shortly bring them about. Now that's what the, the coupling of this dream means, but I want you to hear the humble faith in Joseph and the confident faith in Joseph as he's saying that. Because who else received a couple dream? That would mean that the thing was fixed by God and would shortly bring it about. But Joseph in chapter 37. And so this is so packed full of faith and humility in Joseph that rather than begrudging the last 13 years and doubting God and doubting whether or not God would actually keep his promises, Joseph is saying, this double dream, I've had one of these. And what it means is that it is fixed by God and he will shortly bring it about. So interpretation, yes, God will shortly bring about this years of plenty and this years of famine, but you know what else he's gonna shortly bring about that Joseph has in view as he's saying this? Joseph's exaltation. God will keep his promises. He revealed these things to me 13 years ago and I have not let go of what God has said. I've held on by faith all these years through sorrow, through suffering, through, this was a miserable experience. We're gonna read in a a little bit, Psalm 105. It says that Joseph had a collar of iron and had his hands shackled. He was in a pit. And this is 13 years of suffering. And he's looking and saying, God is faithful to his promises. What he has said cannot be moved. It will not be changed. And he will shortly bring it about. 
but he is in charge of what shortly means. Next, I want you to see, in, in addition to Joseph's humble faith, it's this confident faith. This humility isn't this uh, insecurity that just sort of like is bashful. He's got this humble faith in God that is so confident of what God has said that he is stepping in with a bold wisdom into the courts of Pharaoh and he presumes not only to give him the interpretation but also to give him counsel on what he should do. So this is Joseph becoming like a national security advisor all of a sudden, which is not what Pharaoh asked him to do. But he just goes right from the interpretation to, therefore, here's what you should do, ruler of the known world. Here's what, how you should respond to this revelation of God, O king. So we read that, right? He tells them to store up in years of plenty for the years of famine. Pharaoh is floored. He recognizes this is the interpretation. God, even here you see God's sovereign providence that a, a pagan king is able to recognize the will of God and the revelation of God when he sees it. And he's able to respond favorably to this bold servant of God who's giving him the interpretation. So we pick up in verse 37. This proposal that he didn't ask for pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Oh, friends, this is what God wants to do through your suffering. This is what God wants to produce in you, that you would walk with him so intimately and learn to trust him so that as you walk about, people would be able to recognize you have been with Jesus in the secret place, that, that he's able to look at him and say, there's nobody like him in whom is the spirit of God. Can we find anybody else who walks with God like this? Man, may people be able to say that of our church. So listen to this. Then Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him with garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So listen to this. Joseph is immediately promoted from this prophetic role to this kingly role where he is like a type of the kings to come who would rule over the people of the land with wisdom by the Spirit of God. 
And we've already seen from David that Joseph is a type of the Christ who is to come. Here is one who has been exalted to the highest place and ruling with absolute authority and ruling with wisdom. And I don't want you to miss this. I just want you to think about this. Joseph is praying in prison and it's been 13 years and he has no idea when the fulfillment of the promise is going to come. And in a matter of hours, he goes from the lowest place, uh, cupbearers calling him that young Hebrew slave, like this completely inconsequential, inconsequential slave guy, told me this dream. He's a Hebrew, who, by the way, we all have this ethnic hatred for. And he goes from being in the complete lowest place in the kingdom to being elevated second only to Pharaoh in a matter of an, like an hour. It wasn't hard for God. It was completely easy for him. But here's what I was thinking as I was looking at this. Joseph didn't posture or try to find an angle so that he could get out of prison earlier than his allotted time. He trusted God. David referred to this last week. He probably could have broken out at different points. But yeah, he tried to get out. He asked the cupbearer, hey, remember me when you get out. But he was content to trust God and to pursue greater faith and faithfulness in the midst of the waiting. And so I think that one of the applications for us is if you spend all of your time in the pits of your life trying to get out in your own strength, trying to avoid what God is doing in the midst of your trials and circumstances, then you are going to miss what God has for you in the midst of the pit. There is a fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. And if you don't have a theology for that, you're going to completely miss growing in faith and the intimacy with God that he has for you in the midst of the trials of your life. There is something infinitely more precious to God than the comfort and security of your life. And he is after producing Christ in you. He is using the suffering and the sorrows and the trials of your life to form fit you for glory and to produce Christ in you. But we see this, there is one, one passage we're going to end with and focus on, but I, wanna, I want you to be thinking about it now. It's we're called to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and know that he will exalt you, listen to this phrase, at the proper time. At the proper time. And this was Joseph's proper time. He, he has this exaltation after 13 years of living in humiliation that God was using to forge his character in him. He comes out exalted. And you can just picture all of his persecutors, picture Potiphar and his wife and everybody else having to bow the knee before Joseph as he rides by because God was exalting his servant as the ruler over all. And he went out over the land of Egypt. It literally means he went out over all the land of Egypt, meaning he was in charge everywhere he went. I don't know if you've ever worked in retail or in a company where the manager walks around and it's, most of you guys are the bosses, so you won't really appreciate this. But imagine how your guys feel when you walk into the room, right? This is all of a sudden, Joseph goes from completely inconsequential to being like the GM that when he comes around, guys are like, quick, gather the grain. Just complete boss over all the land of Egypt in a matter of moments. 
And so what I want you to hear from as we close out this scene is that God is able to bring through breakthrough, deliverance, and exaltation whenever he wants, in a moment. It's not hard for him. He can take you from the, the deepest pit to the greatest exaltation in a moment. And so it's to trust him, to trust him. Scene three, the God who providentially saves his people. He providentially saves his people. We continue in verse 46. It says, Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food those seven years. And he put the food in the cities. And Joseph stored up grain in abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Now, this is like one of the great priest families in Egypt that was super wealthy. This was like the worshipers of the sun god. And Joseph was getting locked in to nobility. It was sort of like, this is not just a momentary raise. I'm marrying you into one of the wealthy, great families. And you could read that and wonder, well, what's going to happen to Joseph and his faith? We know what happens later to Solomon when he marries these foreign wives and they lead him away. So what's going to happen to Joseph as he marries this daughter of a, a priest of a false god? So she bears him these sons. And verse 51 says, he calls the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he has said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was a famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, and what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So first thing we need to see from this text is Joseph has these two sons in Egypt before the famine breaks in, and he names them these Hebrew names. He is still a follower of Yahweh God, and he chooses to name them names that carry significance about the faithfulness of God. He, he names his firstborn Manasseh, pointing to the redemption of God, saying, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. This latter days are better than the first. And Ephraim, he's saying, this blessing has been greater than all the trials and all the problems that preceded this. And we need to look at that with faith and hope and be reminded of passages like Paul saying, this light and momentary affliction are producing for us a weight of glory beyond comparison. Yeah, these years of suffering, these years of tribulation were heavy and the affliction was hard, but this blessing that God brings about later, indeed, that he used those years to produce, were far greater than the suffering that preceded it. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So I want to encourage you with that this morning, as you find yourself in the midst of the suffering, but not yet the glory. There is coming a day when the glory of your faith, tested and purified, more precious than gold, 
is going to produce for you honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus. And you will be shining like Christ, like the sun. In all of his glory, he will completely finish the work that he started in you. And you will live with him in the glory that he had with the Father from before the world began. And that is coming. And we have to let the weight of that lean against the weight of our present circumstances and weigh more. If you are in Christ, that's a big if. If not, if you have yet to place your trust in Jesus, God is using the suffering of your life as a wake-up call to call you to himself. But if you are in Christ, God is at work in the midst of all the suffering of your life. And he's using it to produce glory for him and he's using it to work towards your own glorification. And he will not waste it. You need to hear that. In the suffering of your life, when the bottom falls out, in the midst of your life's greatest devastations, God will not waste this. In Psalm 105, the psalmist gives us a perspective of what God was doing in Joseph in the midst of these years. Psalm 105 verse 16 says, When God summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, it was God who did that. There was untold suffering in the land of Egypt and in all the land surrounding it, and God was producing it, providentially working his good purposes, controlling all the circumstances of life according to the counsel of his will to work his plan of salvation. It says in verse 17 of Psalm 105, God sent a man ahead of them. Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So it was God. In the midst of Joseph being sold as a slave, it was God sending him ahead. Joseph's feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. So I don't want you to miss what God was doing in the midst of the 13 years. It says that God was sending forth his word and testing Joseph. And that word for testing is refining. It's what a goldsmith does. It's back to our example that we use all throughout our series in 1 Peter, where you have the hand of a loving father on the heat of your life. And he turns it up. And all the dross and all yourself and all your selfishness bubbles to the surface and all your unbelief and all your doubt. And then he lovingly, he scrapes it off and he turns up the heat. He is at work to see his reflection in you. But it is the hand of a loving father on the heat, testing Joseph, trying Joseph, purging Joseph of himself. So this is the sovereign God who providentially saves his people. But what he's doing here, you got to, don't miss this. God is not just using Joseph to save the world that comes to him. God was saving Joseph all throughout the trials of his life, leading to that moment. He was saving him from himself and purging him so that he would emerge more like the God who was refining him. And God was sending him ahead as a deliverer, not just for the land of Egypt, but for all the world who came and they came to Joseph and so that leads us right into, it's, it's our favorite part in all these messages in Genesis, right? How Joseph is a type of Christ who is to come. Now, David mentioned this last week that 
Joseph's emerging from the pit and being exalted over all foreshadowed Christ rising from the grave where he experienced the humiliation. Philippians 2 describes how we're charged to have this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus, that he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he willingly embraced suffering and humiliation all the way to the point of death on a cross. And because he did, God rose him from the grave and highly exalted him with a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every single knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to him and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Joseph's story foreshadowed that, humbled and brought through the fires of suffering and then brought up out of the grave to emerge as the ruler of all. And we are charged to follow Jesus on this journey through death into life. We want the exaltation to come now. Like, Jesus, we we hear you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. I know that you're at work in me, but I just want a break from sanctification for a moment. God, can you just expedite this process? Can you just give us glory now? But he is at work, and he knows what you need. And so the hand of the loving Father turns the heat up. And he removes the dross. And he says, I'm with you in the midst of it. And he holds you fast. <clears throat> Sometimes following Jesus on this road of suffering that leads to life feels unspeakable and unbearable in the pain. And you want to create a detour or a bypass around the cross, but you need to wait on the Lord. And he will exalt you at the proper time. That is the promise. That should just be a canopy over your life. That if nothing changes between now and 13 years from now, you, you're like Joseph in the midst of the fire rather than the suffering and the hardship hardening you and making you more bitter and doubting the goodness of God. It purges you of yourself as you yield to him and you come through refined trusting in his promise and looking with greater faithfulness to what lies ahead and the glory that cannot be revealed, uh, cannot be compared to the suffering that you are enduring now. Joseph was a type of Christ. All the nations came to him for deliverance and for life. He's, Jesus is the ultimate prophet and king ruling wisely over his people by the Spirit of God. And every knee will bow to Jesus and confess his lordship, just like Joseph was paraded through the streets and everybody was commanded to bow down to him. But I want you to see this. Joseph's exaltation, glorious as it was, he's given this gold chain. This was, this was frequently done. There's like, uh, oh man, like hieroglyphic pictures of this art of this kind of honoring happening from this day and age where he's given this gold chain and he's given this signet ring of you have the authority and he's paraded through the streets and as amazing as that exaltation was, it is nothing 
compared to the exaltation that you're going to receive in Jesus. The difference between Joseph and us is that we have already received these promises and there are aspects of our exaltation that are already true even as we wait on him. So scripture's clear. Right now, if you're in Christ, you are already sons and daughters of God, even though you don't look like it yet. Even though you don't appear yet as what you will, you are right now children of the living God. You've been united to Christ and given every blessing in the heavenly places right now. You're clothed with the righteousness of Christ right now. That's not a future promise. He's he's not waiting to declare you righteous once you pass a lot of different tests. Right now, he has declared you pardoned and innocent before the living God. And one day, this will just put you on your face. One day, Jesus is going to invite you to sit on his throne with him. To the one who overcomes. To the one who conquers. There is coming a day when the king of the universe is going to invite you to sit with him. Not because you're so great, but because he's so merciful, because he's so loving, because he's so kind, because he saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God by him. For some, their exaltation, their proper time will happen in this life. And for others, their exaltation will be when they step right into glory. I thought about John the Baptist in this. You know John the Baptist heard this story. And this is, see the providence of God that I'm reading out of Mark while I'm preparing for the sermon. I just see these contrasts, these examples right next to each other. And God did that for you. So in this moment, you could hear this. John the Baptist, same kind of moment. In a dungeon, you know he was hoping for a Joseph kind of moment. He sends to Jesus in the midst of his doubt and says, Are you the Messiah or should we wait for somebody else? And Jesus sends to him and says, go tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And then what are the next words out of his mouth? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Shocking. You know one thing about the messianic promise that Jesus did not include there? He sets the captives at liberty. And he leaves it off. He says, I'm doing everything that I promised. But you're staying put. Blessed is the one who is not offended at me. And so you can just imagine John waiting for this Joseph kind of moment because Joseph was in his same state and in a moment it just completely transformed for him. Prison door swings open, hears the creak, looks up. There's a guy with an ax and he's beheaded on the spot. Joseph went from humiliation and suffering to exaltation in a moment. And so did John both, by the way, that Jesus had assigned to them. So this is what Jesus says to to Peter as he's trying to compare himself with John, and he's saying, look, here's the death by which you are meant to glorify God. And Peter looks across at somebody else and says, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. 
And so I just want you to hear this over your life, and I'm going to leave you with these exhortations from Peter, but I want you to hear this over your life. In the midst of the sufferings and the trials of your life, Jesus is with you. He sees you. He is using them to produce himself in you and to cultivate intimacy with you, which is of infinitely greater value than the deliverance that you're longing for. And if you try to produce deliverance and exaltation in your own strength, you will miss what he has for you in the waiting. And when you get out, you won't be ready for the exaltation that comes. And so don't seek deliverance in your own strength, but pursue faith and faithfulness and the character formation of Christ in you that he is after. And if he has If he works exaltation for somebody else or he works deliverance for somebody else, don't compare yourself to them. Don't look across at them in envy. He looks at you and he says, I love you. What is that to you? You follow me. Follow me on this way of the cross through death into life. I want to leave you with these exhortations from Peter and we're done. Peter We went through a series called Set Apart a few years back. If you're in a season of suffering, I recommend those messages to you. Peter's writing to a people who are being persecuted for their faith and experience suffering for the sake of the gospel. And in chapter 1, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So just hear God's grace to you in that. You're grieved by various trials, but he gives you the grace to rejoice because you realize God only gives you necessary trials. And he does it so that the tested genuineness of your faith, there's that word that was used for what was happening to Joseph, is purified, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, that that faith would abound and results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. David referred last week to Peter in the next chapter talking about Jesus left us this example of suffering to follow him in so that by his strength that he supplies, we would be able to follow him in his suffering, all the while entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good, knowing that it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the last real exhortation to you in the midst of this, and I don't want you to miss it. Suffering does not just automatically produce Christ in you. It just won't automatically emerge purified, trust in God, not bitter. I don't know who said it, but it's a good quote. The same fire that melts the ice hardens the clay. When God sends fire into your life, there's an opportunity for you to respond, either by hardening your heart against God and his purposes for you in the midst of the fire, or doubting the goodness of God that he would allow something this terrible to happen to you. Or you can press in and yield to him. You can press on to know him. You can press on into the fellowship of his sufferings to come to know and enjoy and believe on him more than you did before. 
In the last chapter of 1 Peter, Peter writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And that is just this umbrella verse over this message, and I'm praying over your life. It's not that the anxieties aren't real. It's not that the gravest trials aren't real. It's that you're able to cast them on him because he cares for you. He loves you. He has showed that with finality at the cross. And so you can know that no matter what you're going through, that God is for you and he loves you and he is using this. And at the proper time, he will, he will deliver you. And if it's not yet, then it's not the proper time. And he is the one who will determine when it is right and when it is not. And Peter concludes that passage. You guys can come back up to lead us in song. Peter concludes that passage. Brothers and sisters, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, man, I am praying that in the midst of great trial and grief and suffering, that the Lord would minister to your heart, that he sees you and he can deliver you he can change everything about what's happening in your life in a moment. He's sovereign. So you cannot question that and judge his wisdom by your feeble sense and how you would run your life in the universe if he gave you the keys. We have to choose to trust him and know God is good and God is love. He has showed that with stunning clarity all throughout your life but with finality at the cross. And so that is a lighthouse for your soul when the storm gets dark and you're storm-tossed. You have this anchor for your soul that Jesus loves you and he showed it with finality at the cross. And he will himself, he is not going to outsource your restoration and your exaltation. He is going to do it himself and he's going to do it at the proper time. So if it happens in your life like Joseph where it happens tomorrow, blessed be the name of the Lord. And if it happens on the other side of glory, like John the Baptist, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. And it is our charge, our aim, not to manufacture a way around the trial, but to trust him in the midst of it, looking to Jesus and looking to glory. Let's pray. Father, it is hard to trust you in the midst of life's hardest circumstances. Lord, especially when we are hardwired for unbelief and self-reliance. Lord, there's so often that we wish there was a workaround to the way of the cross, that there was somehow a way to glory and exaltation that didn't pass through suffering, but that is not your way. Suffering and glory 
are linked and that suffering precedes glory every time. That there is salvation that you need to work in us and you do it through trials and hardship and over our lives you say, in this world you will have trouble but take courage, take heart. I have overcome the world. So, Father, we are asking you, and I know right now, so I ask you for this. I am asking for a miracle because we cannot produce faith in ourselves. We cannot bear up under trials on our own. We do not have what it takes for a faithful endurance with joy. And so we are asking for you, Holy Spirit, to come and to produce what only you can. Use the trial of our lives and how raw we feel to open us up before you with vulnerability and desperation to say, God, we need you. Lord, would you deliver us? But Lord, help me not to waste this pain and this suffering. Give me grace to surrender to you and yield to you in the midst of it. Help us to trust you as we wait for the proper time. In your name we pray, amen.